We are under attack. Behind the bright lights of the global stage, there lies a dark underworld most people know nothing about. People need to care what's happening inside of Putin's Russia because it's affecting all of us. The Soviet Union collapsed, set him off, and now he basically came back with revenge for everyone. This is Kremlin File. Hi, everybody. I'm Mo. And I'm Olga. And we're really, really excited today because our guest, hey, Olga, is Bill Browder, Putin's number one enemy. Yeah. He ran the largest foreign investment fund in Russia until they kicked him out. Yeah, the Kremlin kicked Browder out to seize his assets. And then, you know, it led to his offices in 2007 in Moscow being raided. Putin, you know, when he chooses you as an enemy, he'll assassinate you, take financial revenge. Takes your money, whatever he can, right? And with everything that's going on in Afghanistan... We followed up with Bill. Yes. So I asked him about, you know, his thoughts on Afghanistan and his comment was, quote unquote, the Russians paid the Taliban bounties to kill American soldiers. Now that the Taliban has taken over Afghanistan, Russia is the only country not evacuating their embassy. Any reasonable person could draw the most unpleasant conclusion from that fact pattern. Yeah. Yeah. So he basically is highlighting the years long relationship with Russia. Russia is, you know, playing this dramatic scene of suddenly they're going to recognize the Taliban and they're, you know, that they've changed or at least they're seeing positive movement and acting as if they just met him them for the first time when they've been, you know, selling weapons to them for years. I mean, this relationship goes back for a while, even under Trump, yep. Russia was involved. I found out about Taliban negotiations between United States and Taliban because of Russian media. Before it even got into U.S. media, Russia was discussing how they were going to partner in conducting these negotiations, which I was like, well, again, Russia's in our foreign policy. There they are again. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Bill Browder's lawyer was murdered in a Russian jail for exposing Kremlin corruption. And that is actually what led him on to this campaign against human rights crimes by authoritarians and for him to write his excellent book, Red Notice. Putting his life on the line. Yeah, he is on Putin's kill list. Exactly. So welcome. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. You had an extremely successful investment firm in Russia, and you were CEO of Hermitage Capital Investment. In the beginning of Putin's presidency, you, like other people as well, thought, okay, well, he's going to be fighting corruption. Bill, what changed your mind about Putin? Well, when he first came in, he he actually wasn't really all that powerful, certainly not like he is today. He was kind of president of the presidential administration of Russia. But a lot of the powers, the real powers of the presidency had been usurped by all sorts of other characters, the oligarchs principally and regional governors and so on and so forth. It was all one big free for all when he came in. And so when I was first dealing with Putin and I've never met the guy, but when when I was first dealing with him, I was fighting against the oligarchs who were stealing all sorts of money from the companies that I was investing in. And Putin was fighting the same oligarchs because they were stealing power from him. And so in the early days of Putin, 
there's this expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And so when Putin first started out and I was going after these oligarchs, so was he. And so mm. I, I kind of thought he was trying to clean up Russia. It turned out that he wasn't trying to clean up Russia. He just didn't like the oligarchs having the power. Mm. And so eventually he sort of went for broke, arrested the richest oligarch in the country, Mikhail Hordakovsky. And it wasn't because he wanted to like end oligarch capitalism. He just wanted to become the biggest oligarch himself. Yeah. And that's what he ended up doing after Hordakovsky's arrest. Right. And then he gave Roman Abramovich $13 billion for his oil company. And so you have one oligarch who he arrested, put in jail, went after all of his family and friends and so on, stole everything. And then the other oligarch, he paid $13 billion to and made him governor of Chukotka in Siberia. And I thought, well, mm. this is not a guy who's trying to like end oligarch capitalism. This is just a guy who's doing dirty deals. And I think that was the moment that it became crystal clear to me that Putin wasn't acting in the national interest. Wow. So I, I had been kicked out of Russia in 2005 and declared a threat to national security. My offices were raided in June of 2007. They seized all of our documents. And then the documents were used in a highly complex fraud in which a bunch of corrupt officials and criminals stole $230 million of taxes that my firm paid to the Russian government. Wow. Can you tell us about Sergei Magnitsky? Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer in Russia. Mm -hmm. I got to know Sergei as we were being targeted by the Putin regime. And we hired Sergei and he figured out that the raid on our office, the purpose of it was to steal $230 million. Magnitsky, an anti-corruption lawyer, uncovered what he believed was a huge tax fraud involving Russian officials. He got all the evidence to show the complicity of senior Russian government officials. He testified against those officials and the police officers who were assisting them. But after telling the authorities, he was arrested in 2008 on suspicion of tax evasion. Brought by those same police officers he had testified against. And then he was subsequently arrested. He was put in pretrial detention. He was tortured for 358 days. His final days were spent in agonizing pain. They put him in cells with feces on the floor. They took away his ability to boil water so he had to drink the poisonous prison water. He lost 40 pounds and developed pancreatitis and gallstones. Instead of putting him in the emergency room, uh, they put him in an isolation cell that chained him to a bed and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him for one hour and 18 minutes until he died. And they killed him because of me. Since I wasn't in Russia, they needed to find somebody, a hostage to kill. Up until the last moment, Sergei was one of these people who believed that Russia had a rule of law and that it was kind of this idealistic belief that ultimately led to his demise. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. He was murdered on November 16th, 2009. And I got the message on the morning of the 17th. The Russian government says the cause of death was heart failure. Then it was the most horrifying, heartbreaking, disastrous, life-changing news I could have ever gotten. On that morning, when I was finally able to think clearly, I made a vow to his memory, to his family, to myself, that I was gonna put aside everything else I was doing and devote all of my time, all of my resources, and all of my energy to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. The last 11 years now, that's what I've been doing. You have, and again, this is a direct quote from you over the last few days, described Russia at the moment as a criminal state. But what do you mean by that? What can you do now, given what has just happened? 
Sergei Magnitsky's name has become synonymous with injustice and corruption in Russia. Hillary Clinton has urged Russia to seek justice, and there are calls for those allegedly involved in Mr. Magnitsky's death to be barred from the U.S. So I went to Washington, and effectively we found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. Basically, if you go after their money in the West, that's where their real exposure lies. For human rights, there's a face. It's not just about statistics or the number of people. It's about the individuals who have been victimized. And we showed that today in the actions of the United States Senate. December 2012, Congress passed the Sergei Magnitsky Act, which gives the federal government the ability to ban entry to and freeze the American assets of anyone responsible for extrajudicial killings, torture, or other gross violations of internationally recognized human rights committed against whistleblowers or human rights activists in Russia. Many Americans are not familiar with the life of this Russian patriot, but it was one life dedicated to and ultimately sacrificed for principles that we all hold dear. Sergei Magnitsky was an unlikely hero in the cause of freedom. He was an ordinary man. He didn't spend his life as a human rights activist or as an outspoken critic of the Russian government. Magnitsky was a tax attorney working for an international company that had invested in Russia. He blew the whistle on tax fraud and large-scale theft by Russian government officials who had looted more than $230 million from the Russian state. He was thrown into one of Russia's harshest prisons without trial. Russian officials pressured Magnitsky to lie and recant, and he refused to surrender principle to power. And for his refusal, he was beaten and tortured. He was denied medical care. And after 358 days in prison, he died in excruciating pain on November 16, 2009. It's been said that in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And without a doubt, Sergei Magnitsky was a revolutionary. He told the truth and he gave his life for it. Our nation and free people everywhere must continue to draw strength from his example. And with that strength, renew our commitment to stand by those who carry on the fight for freedom around the world. Our message must be clear. If you violate the human rights and civil liberties of others, the United States will hold you accountable. There are now 39 people on the Magnitsky list as an open-ended list. I would thank Obama for adopting this law. Somehow it will keep my son's memory alive. In death, Sergei Magnitsky has become a symbol of the battle against corruption. Now the Magnitsky Act has been very successful. U.S. adopted it, Europe adopted it. Have you seen resistance with it? The main resistance to the Magnitsky Act came from Vladimir Putin, who immediately following the passage of the Magnitsky Act banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families, which sounds pretty horrible, but it's actually worse than it sounds because the orphans that Russia was allowing Americans to adopt were the sick ones, the ones with uh, Down syndrome and HIV and fetal alcohol syndrome. And Americans were taking these sick children back to America and nursing them to health. And, and these children, if they were left in the orphanages, died in the orphanages, some of them. And so Putin was effectively sentencing his own orphans to death as a protest against the Magnitsky Act. He hated it so much. He made it his largest foreign policy priority to have the Magnitsky Act repealed. And so that says two things. One, that there's going to be a lot of resistance, which there was. But two, it said that we had found his Achilles heel. If he hates it this much, then there must be good. And it has been good. It's been a, a, an incredibly powerful tool because it goes after just the bad guys without collateral damage. 
And what about from Western countries? Have they been on board? We see with sanctions, they start out strong in U.S. at least, and then they end up getting watered down. Have you had any resistance from Western countries or pretty much it's been very effective? I've been working full time on this campaign for 11 years, and I would say that I've encountered resistance in every place I've ever been (laughs) at every step of the way, including the United States. I mean, there are so many people who want to sweep this stuff under the carpet. There are so many officials that just don't want trouble with Russia in every foreign ministry and the State Department and the Foreign Office in Britain, all the bureaucrats, they don't want trouble with Russia. Hmm. And so it's it's a huge undertaking to override that, to um, to try to get to the morality of the matter instead of what, what's convenient is not what's moral. And, and that's been a huge problem and, and a very difficult problem. And even getting the Magnitsky Act passed is only half the battle because then we have to get people sanctioned. It's implemented, yeah. Yeah. And there's so much resistance at every step of the way. And, yeah. and it's it's frustrating and it's hard. But what I found is that I want it more than the people who don't want it. <laughs> and I'm more persistent and I have a better reason. You know, it's kind of like guerrilla warfare. You know, we're the guerrilla warriors for um, for human rights. And, and it means more to me than it means to the bad guys yeah. and, and the amoral guys inside the... Uh, these institutions in the West that don't want it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And they're also going after people, for example, even journalists in the UK, what is happening. I was reading about, you know, the Catherine Belton situation there, Oh, you know, with her book. And it's, it's appalling. Yeah, it's absolutely appalling. So the Catherine Belton story is the most obscene legal pylon by Russian oligarchs against a defenseless British journalist. I've ever seen in my life. It's just shocking. You have, I believe, five different plaintiffs. So Catherine wrote what I would describe as the definitive book on Putin's corruption. Mm-hmm. Putin's people. Putin's people. Mm-hmm. She's been a decade writing this book. It's definitive. It's and, and for anyone listening to this, you've got to go out and buy this book yeah. because it is like the thesis that defines and proves Putin's corruption. Yeah. And she goes into yeah. just unbelievable forensic detail. And because it's so good and because it really names names that every step of the way, they've decided to make her an example. And these four oligarchs all claim that they weren't coordinating. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And they go out and hire the most expensive libel lawyers in Britain. Yeah. And, and let me tell you, I, I've been on the other side of this a bunch of times right. where I've been sued by Russians on libel suits. It's a big headache, a pain in the ass, expensive. And that's for somebody who's well-resourced like me. You know, I I can hire lawyers and I can fight back, but, you know, every letter you get, you got to read it, you got to think about it, you got to reply to it. And uh, uh, it's it's no fun at all. And this is the biggest legal pile on it. And and guess what? I would imagine every other journalist thinking about writing about corruption in Russia is not going to write about corruption in Russia because they don't want to spend their whole life for the next three years, you know, fighting off some obscene spurious libel suit from a bunch of dirty oligarchs. Yeah, Yeah, we're having the same thing in the United States. And, you know, coming from the Soviet Union, I never thought, you know, that the government wouldn't use all the resources possible to protect dissidents and to protect journalists in in their exposure of corruption. And it's the same thing in U.S. You have Russian oligarchs suing journalists, suing, you know, dissidents. And again, the suits are meritless. They'll get thrown out of court. But the problem is this intimidates other journalists from moving forward and doing investigations. And at the same time, it's costly and a headache. 
for a regular person who's just trying to get to a story or trying to expose human rights or corruption. What measures do you think the West can take to stop this? Because it's it's unacceptable. It's appalling what is happening both in London with Catherine and in U.S. with people I know, especially like it increased during the Trump administration because we had several oligarchs doing, you know, media outlets, journalists, anybody who wrote a book about Russia, they filed the suit. So what can Western governments do? Well, there's a word for this. It's, it's a definition. They call it a strategic lawsuit against public participation. In other words, somebody is suing not for what's been said. It's they're suing to prevent people from participating in public outing of, of corruption or, or legislation or, or whatever. And so there's a definition. It's called the SLAPP, mm-hmm. S-L-A-P-P. And the United States is probably leading on this in terms of anti-SLAPP provisions where laws are passed to say that if a judge thinks that it's a slap, then they can quickly dismiss it or they can make you know, create fines for the people doing it. Mm-hmm. Having said that, and you're, you're right, Olga, that, that um, they do it exist in the United States. I'm, I'm defending one of these slaps right now. I'm, I'm, I'm subject to one in the Washington, D.C. federal federal court, and it's been going on for three years. It's, wow. And in the U.K., it's even worse because in the UK, the laws are just completely sort of, you know, prehistoric and, and totally favoring the these oligarchs and so on. And right. it's all got to be changed. And, and you know, we, we have all these reports saying we, we don't want the Russians to uh, use their influence on our political process. And at the same time, the Russians are using our institutions. Yeah, they're weaponizing them against us to silence. Weaponizing the courts. Absolutely. Bill, can you talk about Navalny and what are your thoughts on Putin poisoning and jailing him? And from the repressive measures that honestly he's taking the country back to Soviet days. Mm -hmm. Putin has been around for 20 years and illegitimately been around for 20 years. Anytime somebody challenges him, they either get killed like Boris Nemtsov, they get exiled like Garry Kasparov, or they get imprisoned mm-hmm. by like Alexei Navalny. Mm-hmm. And after 20 years, Putin can no longer lie to people and say it's somebody else's fault. Whatever's going on in Russia is Putin's fault. And, and what's going on in Russia is not a great deal for most Russians. Right. And so Putin has tried to like sideline everybody who's who's been involved. And the main way he's done that is by by not letting people use state television. But Putin is a man of of like the past. <laughs> and we're in a technological <laughs> age where he didn't understand that everybody uses YouTube. They don't use television anymore. And, and so 100 million people watched Alexei Navalny's video. Yeah. And I would argue that if there was an election today, a real election today, Alexei Navalny would be elected president. And and Putin can't afford that because if, if Alexei Navalny were president, then he would lose all his yeah. money. He would go to yeah. jail and God knows what would happen. And so Putin has to hold on for dear life. I believe that Alexei Navalny genuinely at this point is the alternative to Vladimir Putin. And, he, and he's elevated himself by, by taking such an unbelievable, brave action by going back to Russia after being poisoned nearly to death and knowing that he was going to be arrested and still going back for the good of his country. And that is like a Nelson Mandela, Nathan Sharansky type of move. And he's elevated himself to that level, both in the eyes of the Russian and the eyes of Western leaders. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that that if he plays his cards right, Putin could could do any number of things to self-destruct. Yeah. And Alexei Navalny will be standing there ready to take over. And what can we do as far as what can the West do? Because uh, Navalny handed over a sanctions list of people that should be sanctioned by the West that are close to Putin and who are 
supporting his his hold on power. Hmm. What can we all do? Well, exactly what Alexei Navalny has asked us to do. So Alexei Navalny, before going back to Russia from Berlin, where he was recovering from Novichok poisoning, said to his colleagues, here's a list of 35 people, Putin oligarchs, Putin trustees. If anything bad were to happen to me in Russia, take these lists to the U.S., to the EU, to the U.K., to Canada, and have these people sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act. And something bad has happened to Navalny. Terrible things have happened to Navalny. You know, I mean, I, I'm pleased with some of the things that Joe Biden has said, calling Putin a killer. Mm-hmm. But but I'm not pleased with what Joe Biden said when he said, well, if they kill Navalny, we're going to do uh, all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. They should be doing all sorts of stuff to Russia, to Putin right now. Right now well, yeah. and they, should, they should take that list of 35 people and sanction five of them and say, if anything more happens to Navalny, five more. And then we'll go for the full 35 and then another 35. Yeah, That's yeah. how you get to Putin is go after the money of the oligarchs. Now. Exactly. Cutting the money trail. I have a follow up on that uh, with Joe Biden. Between Joe Biden sitting down and having a summit, which is a mistake pretty much of every prior president, because there's really nothing to get out of Putin. It's dealing with a mafia state and a mafia leader. Yeah. Why is Europe? suddenly on board, particularly France and Germany, who floated there having their own set of summits, basically endangering the national security of Eastern and Central European countries. Yeah. So Biden says, well, it didn't do any harm having this this summit, which which I totally disagree with it. Exactly. You know, uh, Putin doesn't deserve to, to have any type of recognition like a summit with the most important man in the free world. Mm-hmm. It, uh, mm-hmm. After all the terrible stuff he's done of taking over Crimea, invading Eastern Ukraine, shooting down passenger planes, bombing Syria, et cetera, et cetera. Putin doesn't deserve to have that that recognition. And as you're absolutely right that Biden, like every other previous president, you know, wants to, like, quote, reset relations or have engage. And, and, and it doesn't it, it's very harmful at the first step because all of a sudden, Putin goes back with you know, in the glory of having sat on the same stage yep. as Biden. Yep. But it's harmful in the second step because all of a sudden you've got Merkel and and Macron say, "Well, we want to have a summit now." And all of a sudden, you know, Boris Johnson wants to have a summit. Yeah. Biden is the leader of the free world. He's he, what he does is highly important and symbolic. And if he says, I, "I'm going to have a summit," everyone else is going to want a summit, and that's exactly. really bad for the type of rec- you know we should be chastising Putin, not not validating him, which is what these summits do. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if anything, he should be shunned and the money needs to be cut off. And even after that, again, the discussion was cooperation on cybersecurity. And since <laughs> that summit, we've gotten slammed United States and Europe. It's like asking the arsonist to cooperate you on fire <laughs> control. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and we've we've gotten hit and I'm like, what kind of cybersecurity cooperation could there be when I mean, they're the ones who are attacking us. And 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 worse than that. So Biden gave him gave him a list of like the 15, you know, institutions that he'd better not hack. And so like. Well, thanks a lot for that. Now now I know who to hack. Yeah, they're like, thank you for the roadmap. Now we know where to hack. What can the West do right now? How do we pressure them to move forward? And especially that you see what's happening in Georgia with the protest and Russia's hand is in it. You see what's happening basically on every point of the planet. They are fueling something. What strategy can be done? Well, so so the main difference between Putin's criminal Russia and the Soviet Union is that Putin and all of the people around him have a huge amount of money and all their money is in the West. You know, the Soviets weren't, um, you know, having big bank accounts in London and going on vacation to Saint-Tropez, but 
but Putin is. That's right. And that's where our <laughs> leverage is. And so we should cut, cut that off and go after the, cut off the money yeah. that belongs to these people, freeze the assets. And I, I guarantee you, they care about money more than anything. They'll, they'll calm down real quick if you go after their money and they won't. If we don't, and it's as simple as that. We always see sanctions being targeted against people close to Putin. Do you think billionaires and oligarchs can exist without the support of the Kremlin? And can these oligarchs refuse orders from the Kremlin to carry out operations in the West as well as moving Kremlin money? in the West. So if you look at these Russian oligarchs, you know, these people are supposed to be worth like, you know, five, 10, 20 billion dollars, according to Forbes magazine, but they're not independently wealthy. They're what I would call dependently wealthy. Okay. Mm. And in, in fact, I would argue that, that the numbers you see in Forbes magazine don't even really reflect their wealth because half the money that belongs to them doesn't belong to them. It belongs to Putin himself or some other government official in which they're acting as trustee. And so these guys are, are sort of stuck in this horrible web of extortion where, where the, the deal is they have to give up half their money. And if they want to keep the other half, they better do what they're told. And Putin has made it real clear that if you don't, you can be, end up like Mikhail Hordakovsky in jail or even worse, Boris Berezovsky hanging from a noose. That's the deal. And so if Putin um, calls on these people and says, I want you to build an Olympic stadium. They build an Olympic stadium. If he calls on them and says, I want you to sue so-and-so in New York, they sue so-and-so in New York. Mm. It's all done because that's what they have to do in order to survive and to keep their money and to stay out of jail. And to follow up on that, we see a lot of uh, Russian oligarchs investing in Facebook and other, you know, social media platforms. And then we saw the role that Facebook played in our elections as well as elections in Europe and just the constant stream of disinformation. How much do you think the Kremlin is involved in that? Well, I think it's probably a pretty big leap to think that because some oligarch owns 2% of Facebook, that they were able to like then make Facebook um, uh, weaponized against U.S. democracy on behalf of Russia. I, I don't think that that's the case. Okay. I think that there are Russians who own interests in technology companies. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are technology companies that would like to maximize profits. And I think that, that there are people like Mark Zuckerberg who doesn't care about the effects. Uh, you know, he, he's narrowly thinking about his own financial interests. And mm. sometimes those financial interests create a scenario where, where Facebook can be weaponized and used by Russian GRU agents or by... Russian troll farms or whatever in order to influence the outcome of elections. Yeah, I wanted to circle back to the Magnitsky Act bill. In the beginning, the act uh, mainly focused on Russia and then it was also used in 2018 with the murder of Khashoggi. Do you see it expanding? Are you seeing, let's say, an expansion towards other cases, for example, in China with the concentration camps? Do you see a movement of it expanding to other authoritarian regimes? There's no question that the Magnitsky Act is in a massive viral expansion, both in terms of countries that have the Magnitsky Act and in terms of use of the Magnitsky Act in the countries that, um, you know, the United States has now gotten, I think, more than 500 entities or people on their Magnitsky list. And and the other really exciting thing is that, that what we're seeing now is coordination between countries. And so for the very first time, specifically in relation to the um, Uyghur, the concentration camps that the Chinese have set up for, for Uyghurs, 
the US, Canada, the EU, and the UK have all worked together on a common sanctions list against a certain group of Chinese officials. And mm. and I was really heartened to see that because I believe that that that's a, a hugely powerful tool. If those four bodies can sanction some officials, then then those people are sanctioned in 30, 31 countries. And I see that as a, um, a model going forward. And I think that you'll see Magnitsky conferences. You'll see other countries joining up. Yeah. I was just very recently on a, um, a big call with the New Zealand parliament where they're now um, have got the appetite for a Magnitsky Act. And nice. Australia is on the cusp of getting a Magnitsky Act. And we're working on Japan and um, Taiwan and, mm. and various other places. And so I think that, that um, this is really a, an incredible tool that, that people are just starting to wake up to the power of, and it's going to really um, make a big difference, not just with Russia, but all over the world. Right. And in our own, where we live, I'm here in Europe, Bill, and even people in the States, who is, let's say, on board in these areas? Who can we show our support, our personal support as citizens for the global Magnitsky Act? Well, so for example, in Europe, one of the big issues is that the EU only sanctions human rights abusers and doesn't sanction corruption. Mm. And how can that be when, when all the other countries do corruption? And so right now there's, there's a real need to put pressure on European politicians in different countries to fix this disparity, because why would Europe be a sort of safe haven for corruption when everyone else is saying it shouldn't be? Exactly. So I think this is really important and anyone living in Europe should express their surprise. And, yep. and you know, Europe, the European Union and, and all these the European Commission all talk a good game about their virtue. Mm -hmm. But if they're sitting there saying, nope, we're not going to sanction corruption, that doesn't seem very virtuous to me at all. No, exactly. Exactly. I, I actually talked with an MEP. Uh, two MEPs about this. And for a specific case that was happening here in Italy with Patrick Zaki, who is detained in Egypt. And, uh, you know, I was soliciting one of the uh, one of the MEPs that represents my own area here in Italy on it to, to see if it could be applied. Uh, but no, the corruption part is absolutely fundamental. I mean, otherwise, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah. Right. If you think about it. Exactly. And in our case in the United States, Senator McCain and Senator Cardin have been big champions of this. And Senator Cardin was behind having Magnitsky Act apply to the Khashoggi murder. Do you see it expanding and the support within Congress in the United States? I think I think the Magnitsky Act is one of the you know most sort of revered pieces of legislation in the United States for members of Congress, because you know, for, for, for years, they've been approached by victims of, of human rights abuse and, and kleptocracy. And for years, the only thing they could do is, you know, write a letter to the State Department saying, could you please bring this up? And now all of a sudden, they can write a letter to the State Department saying, could you please sanction XYZ dictator for all these terrible things that they've done? And it's really very powerful. And it's something that really hurts the people who end up on the Magnitsky list. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Going back further into it right now, last year after the Belarus elections, Lukashenko and his regime have committed endless atrocities against peaceful protesters. Do you see this being applied to Lukashenko and his regime? Yeah, I mean, the Magnitsky Act is um, the first stop in dealing with the Lukashenko 
regime, and particularly dealing with the money men who are supporting the Lukashenko regime. And so I've been in very close touch with the Belarusian opposition, and they have done a lot of research into who is financing the regime. And, and in fact, one of the big names is a Russian oligarch named Mikhail Gutsariev, who is the owner of the oil company called Rusneft. Mm-hmm. And he was recently sanctioned by the European Union, which is which is pretty remarkable because the European Union is pretty timid on these things. Mm. But he hasn't been sanctioned by the UK. And he's got a ton of property in London, really, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds worth of property in London. And the UK government uh, so far hasn't sanctioned him, which, uh, uh, Mm. you know, needs to be done. Yeah. And he wasn't sanctioned in the United States either. Although they had a very comprehensive list, and I know they're working on applying more sanctions to Lukashenko and his regime. Actually, we were thinking also hopping over onto the European side of things as well. We're seeing a lot, a lot of attacks by Russians. I'm thinking of the cyber attacks that have been in the news just recently, uh, but they've been going on for quite a long time. Bill, do you see Russia crossing any red lines that would make either Germany or France change their appeasement policy towards Russia? Well, I'm glad you describe it as an appeasement policy because that's exactly what it is. The answer is yes. Let me step back and tell you a little story. People always ask me, who's the best advocate for the Magnitsky Act in the world? And and my answer is very simple, Vladimir Putin, Mm. because he does such outrageous stuff that he makes life so much easier for me to get countries to pass the Magnitsky Act. And Vladimir Putin will make sure that there's no more appeasement strategy in Europe at some point because he'll just keep on crossing lines until uh, there's a line that he can't cross anymore. And that happened here in the UK. He could kind of do no wrong until he until he poisoned the scripalls in Salisbury. And they had to close the entire town down. I mean, it, it was like a major sort of national catastrophe. Nobody knew how much Novichok, where it was, how many people were affected. It was remarkable looking at the images of, of what happened. And that was the moment that that all this appeasement, UK appeasement ended. Mm-hmm. And that was also, by the way, the week after that, the UK passed the Magnitsky Act here. Yeah. yeah. So that shows the success. No, that's that's amazing that they're taking it more serious. I wanted to touch on Nord Stream Pipeline. It's very close to completion. Do you see this pipeline as a transatlantic threat? Well, so, so the first thing about this pipeline is, is why in the world would Germany make a decision to become more dependent on Russian gas after Putin has used gas as a weapon, a geopolitical weapon on numerous occasions before? It makes no sense. I mean, this is this started years ago where Putin was cutting off the gas to punish people he, he didn't like for different reasons. I think it was like maybe 10 years ago that the problem started. And 10 years ago, there should have been a decision by Germany and all of the rest of the European Union, even if it costs more money, to find ways of further cutting reliance on Russian gas. But instead, Germany has done just the opposite. They've built a pipeline, invested billions of dollars to become more reliant on Russian gas. And the really, really annoying thing about this, and I I just guarantee you, mark my words, this is going to happen, is that... Um, the pipeline will be built. Eventually, it'll, gas will start flowing. Germany will start consuming more Russian gas. It'll become a higher proportion of their energy plan. And then the Russia will do something horrific. They'll yeah. shoot some another passenger plane out of the sky yeah. or they'll invade another country. And everyone will be jumping up and down saying, this is outrageous. This is terrible. We should do something about it. What are we going to do about it? 
And Germany is going to say, well, we'd like to do something about it, yeah. but, but we're, we're yeah. too dependent on Russian gas. And that leads me to my next question. Do you see Russia using this as leverage in order not to have sanctions and containment policies enacted by Europe, by Germany specifically? Of course, Russia is going to Russia uses everything as leverage in every different situation. There's never a situation where they don't use whatever power they have to this maximum possible advantage. And if they have power here, they'll use it, they'll abuse it. And, and, and literally within moments of the announcement that the pipeline is sort of nearing completion, they, 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 they're now saying if Ukraine doesn't behave themselves, then we will uh, cut off all transit in Ukraine. I mean, literally like yeah. the moment. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it, was, it was right away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then going back to that, what can Ukraine and Poland and Romania and other countries affected and who are being threatened but are still under, you know, at least with Poland and Romania under Europe, what can they do? There's one very interesting angle of the European Union. There's a huge dysfunction, which is a big problem, which is that every decision, every foreign policy decision that the European Union makes requires unanimity. In other words, all 27 countries have to make the same decision. And that has been hijacked by the likes of Viktor Orban in Hungary yeah. to like fight against the Magnitsky Act and to like water down sanctions lists and so on and so forth. And Cyprus even got involved in trying to block the sanctions on Belarus. And, you know, it's a double edged sword. <laughs> okay? You know, um, good countries can also use that veto. And they should. If if Germany is basically, you know, ruining their their situation, they should use their veto to just to show Germany what's what. And that's what I would do if I was the head of state in one of these countries. Yeah. And with that, if the Greens take power in Germany and this upcoming election, do you see any chance of this pipeline being stopped or just not used? Or is it too late? I don't know what's in the mind of the Greens. I mean, there's so much vested interest in Germany. I mean, why, why do, they, do they do this in the first place? They obviously did this because some people got a lot of money. Who those people are and, and what influence they have, I don't know. But um, it, it, it's an irrational decision on the face. It's, it's a truly irrational decision why they did this in the first place. It doesn't serve their national interests at all. There's some something really ugly below the surface and we don't know what it is. And that may affect the Greens as much as it affected the CDU. Yeah, I was reading about that today, actually, that they believe, this analyst believe that there is not going to be too much of a change in the position towards Russia or let's say with Nord Stream 2, even if the Greens, who cannot, because it's a coalition in government, they will probably not be able to govern alone. So this is, you know, uh, they're just going to be continuing right with the with the pipeline and it'll keep it going so on and so forth so i think maybe we're going to have to wait for some sanctions from the states or some way i don't know whether that'll happen or not just just one last thing bill you've said that you are putin's number one enemy okay i've heard this in various interviews and everything you're giving voice and we thank you for this because you're giving voice to a lot of human rights victims, people who have been subjected to extreme crimes. Is there a moment when you were really worried or you were worried about your own personal security? What keeps you going, Bill? There are huge risks to doing this. Um, I've been threatened with death, with kidnapping. There's been eight Interpol arrest warrants issued by Russia against me. I was arrested in Madrid in, in Geneva in 2018. They've sued me all over the world. They make movies about me. They do all sorts of stuff. But none of this is going to stop me from my mission to get justice. I'm not intimidated. I won't back down. Vladimir Putin and his regime murdered Sergei Magnitsky. 
Putin personally got involved in the cover-up. He was 37 years old. He had a wife and two children and a big life ahead of him. It was all cut short by a bunch of greedy bastards surrounding Putin. And I owe it to Sergei to go after those people and make sure that they really regret to the end of their lives what they did to him. It's a long-term fight. And I'm hoping that as time goes on, more and more of the people involved in this thing are shunned and ostracized and punished and, and villainized for, for what they've done. And I'm going to carry on doing it. And we're right with you, Bill. Yeah, I, I want to thank you because every time I see anything happening in Russia, I flag it to you. You always immediately, you know, highlight it, put it out. And God knows these days there are so many arrests happening and it's horrible what's happening inside. Well, we, we all have to fight and we can't do it by ourselves. We all have to do it together. So That's it. thank you for what you guys are doing and, and keep the faith. Yes. Yes, we yeah. will. We will. Thank you. Bill. Thank I appreciate you. so much for everything you're doing, for everything you've done. Thank you. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, KremlinFile.com and find our links to our socials in the show notes. This is Season 1, Kremlin Farm, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara. This is a Bunker Crew Media production with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound engineering by Mike Greenberg. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. I was just about to cook shrimp.